Tonight's reading is the, chap- uh, the book of Jude, um, which you can find on page 1231, starting at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. (coughs) Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves, They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But 
you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This isn't the sermon I wanted to preach, but I think that's okay because this isn't the letter that Jude wanted to write. Verse 3 says he was eager to write about our shared salvation, and I'm sure that would have been a great read. Uh, but this is the letter that God wanted in the Bible. Jude was compelled to write a battle cry because of a situation that arose in the church. And this is the letter that we need in our situation as well. Two weeks ago, um, or a couple, uh, in the last couple of weeks, the Church of England voted to commend plans that allow churches to bless same-sex partnerships. They're not the only denomination to have done so, uh, but they are the largest and most recent in this country. They've produced prayers of blessings for use with same-sex couples in a variety of occasions, um, such as when they enter a same-sex um, civil partnership or civil mar marriage. Uh, the introduction of the document says the following. These prayers of love and faith are commended by the House of Bishops as resources in praying with and for two people who love one another and who wish to give thanks for and mark that love, mark that love in faith before God. To celebrate in God's presence the commitment of two people to each other is an occasion for rejoicing. That's what the Church of England says. Same-sex weddings will still not take place in their churches, and the bishops say they have not proposed any change to their doctrine of marriage. But that's really nothing more than an attempt at a legal loophole. They claim that their prayers do not bless homosexual acts, but rather bless the people. But that was completely undermined when the Archbishop of York uh, wrote to his diocese saying that same-sex couples can now have their relationship acknowledged and celebrated with a blessing. Now, the Church of England did get one thing right. We do want to welcome and uh, we want to welcome everybody into this church whatever their sexuality or relational situation but I do hope that it's clear to all who seek to understand the Bible seriously that the doctrine of marriage has been terribly undermined and that church is now declaring God's blessing on something he calls sinful um, but we're not the Church of England, we're not the United Reformed Church or the Methodist Church, so why do we need to talk about this? 
If the point of this sermon was just about judging other people, then we might as well all go home. There's no point to that. The reason we're talking about it this evening is because we are all in danger. We've seen in Judges that unless God intervenes, sin spirals out of control. That's true of any issue, not just in the realm of sexual ethics. Unless we are being shaped and directed by the Holy Spirit and God's word, we will become just like the world around us. Unless we start talking about issues like this, in 10 years' time, Christchurch Banstead will be changing our position as well in a very similar way. Nor should we take it for granted that everyone at Christchurch Banstead is of the same opinion in this matter. Some of you may be undecided on how to respond to what the Church of England has done. Some of you may think it's a great thing. I'm not here to bash you over the head with the Bible. But I do hope that what you see in Jude you will find compelling. And I trust that you will realize that you too are playing with fire. Um, Here's a few clarifications to get out of the way. This sermon is not about people who are gay. If it was, then it would be a very simple sermon. Love them as you would love anyone else. Preach the gospel to them as you would preach the gospel to anyone else. We have a saviour who loves us as we are, and we have a saviour who loves us too much to leave us as we are. This sermon is also not about Christians who are gay. It's not an us versus them scenario where the heterosexual people are the good guys. There are same-sex attracted people who obey Jesus as Lord. There are heterosexual people who bless same-sex partnerships. The battle lines are not drawn on the basis of sexuality here. This is specifically about how we respond to Christians who bless same-sex partnerships. Here we go. Uh, Let's get our first title up. And it is contend for the faith. Into a situation remarkably like ours, Jude writes, contend for the faith. Verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The word itself, contend, means to strive with great effort in a noble cause. Um, That word also implies that there's a rival in our striving. So think of a wrestler pushing and pulling and straining against his opponent in order to win the gold medal. Jude is calling us to fight. And I really do mean us, because this letter isn't addressed to pastors, church leaders. It's addressed to everybody, the whole church. All Christians are to be involved in this wrestling match. But notice what we are meant to contend for. Contend for the faith. Now, I think some Christians have misread this verse as contend for anything and everything. They're always ready to get their wrestling gear on. So they're ready to go 12 rounds in the ring over baptism, over worship styles, over um, interpretations of Genesis 1 and 2, It's good to hold convictions on those things, to know what you believe on non-gospel issues, but we don't go to war over them. 
We don't decide who's in and who's out based on non-gospel issues. We agree to disagree as brothers and sisters. Jude says contend for what? The faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The faith refers to the central teaching of the apostles. It refers to the essentials of what Christians believe and trust. It means the gospel, the good news of Jesus who came and lived and died and rose for our salvation. When the gospel is at stake, we must contend. When the gospel is being corrupted, we must strive with intense effort to defend it. We don't fight family over non-gospel issues. We agree to disagree. But when salvation is at stake, we contend. We're going to think about how we contend a little bit later when we come to verses 17 to 25. But the first question for us is where this issue of blessing same-sex partnership falls. Do we agree to disagree or must we contend? Let's have our next slide up. I'm convinced that in verses 4 to 16... Jude gives us three reasons why this is a gospel issue. Here are three reasons why we must contend against Christians who bless same-sex partnerships. And again, this isn't about our attitude to gay people. This is about contending with Christians who bless same-sex partnerships. First, and uh, we'll go on a slide, because they deny the lordship of Christ. In verse 4, Jude describes the original situation which made contending necessary. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. There was this group of teachers who were going into different local churches and they seem to be genuine teachers of the faith. They taught about the grace of God. He offers salvation as a free gift to all. I'm sure they would have been very popular, very encouraging. You would leave those churches feeling great. God's grace is amazing. Jude says they secretly slipped in. So they weren't obviously false teachers but in their teaching, they perverted the grace of God into a license for immorality. In other words, they were saying that because we have a God of amazing grace, it doesn't matter how you live. You can continue in immorality. God won't mind. And they weren't openly saying that Jesus Christ isn't Lord. That really wouldn't fit with the whole secrecy thing. Rather, they taught grace with no need for repentance. They taught people to accept Jesus as their savior, but they didn't teach them to accept him as their Lord. They were denying Jesus as sovereign and Lord by teaching that we don't need to submit to his commands. This is a terrible corruption of the gospel, isn't it? Yes, we are saved by grace alone, but we must respond to God's grace in faith and repentance, turning from our sin. We all still fail, but taking repentance out leaves no gospel at all. 
Taking repentance out denies the lordship of Christ. And this is why Jude says fight. Now, what was the immorality that these teachers gave license to? In verses 5 to 7, if you look down, Jude offers three examples of what these teachers are like. All these three examples are those who fell into sexual immorality. Old Testament Israel in the wilderness years um, fell into sexual immorality while they were worshipping Baal. Angels who, according to the teaching of some Jewish rabbis, uh, as an interpretation of Genesis 6, left heaven to have sex with humans. And Sodom and Gomorrah, where people were given to sexual immorality and perversion. So these teachers were preaching that a continued life of sexual immorality was just okay, fine, for Christians. This sermon would apply just as much if Christians were deciding to bless sex before heterosexual marriage. But while Jude speaks of sexual immorality generally, I'm convinced that he has homosexuality towards the front of his mind, homosexual practice towards the front of his mind. The perversion mentioned in the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's specifically about that. And the continued reference to corruption and unnatural desires also points in that direction. These teachers were twisting the grace of God into a license for sexual immorality generally and homosexual practice specifically. And of course, this is exactly what's happening in the Church of England, isn't it? Where Christians, wherever Christians bless, same-sex partnership. The leaders who've advanced this agenda preach God's grace and love to all people, whatever their sexuality. Brilliant. They're right on that. We should show people grace and love, whatever situation they're in. But these very same leaders are perverting God's grace into a license for immorality. They're saying that a same-sex couple can accept Jesus as their savior, but not as their Lord. They're taking repentance out of the gospel. They're diminishing Christ. And that is no gospel whatsoever. I hope you can see that this isn't a secondary issue. This isn't something that Christian brothers and sisters can agree to disagree on when the essentials of the gospel are under attack. We need to contend. Here's the second reason. We'll put it up on the screen. Why we must contend for the faith against Christians who bless same-sex partnerships. They reject what God has revealed. In the uh, recent synod debate, a Bible-believing Anglican asked a question, which I'll paraphrase. Will the bishops resign? if they cease to believe, teach, or uphold biblical teaching on essential matters? Good question. And in response, the Bishop of York spoke about the development of doctrine. He said it was his job to teach the faith. However, he also spoke of the Bible as an acorn yet to become an oak tree an acorn yet to become an oak tree. Uh, the implication being that over time, the teachings of the Bible have to 
grow and mature until they get to the point where they are today. The prayers of blessings are justified as a growth and maturing of what we find in Scripture. It's a really nice image to describe a terrible way of not listening to God. In this view, the teaching of the Bible is only heading in the direction of what is true and what is right. And um, once again, those who express such views sound awfully like the false teachers in Jude. Verses 8 to 10, um, they're going to seem confusing at first, but it will become clear, and it's really very helpful. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Quick aside, I don't actually remember the bit in the Bible where an archangel named Michael has an argument with the devil about Moses. Um, Actually, looking at the rest of Jude, there are a few other examples that I don't really recognize either. Um, The quote from Enoch later, that doesn't seem to be in the Bible. Jude is just quoting from other Jewish literature at the time, in the same way that I might quote from Harry Potter uh, in a sermon. That doesn't mean that Harry Potter literally happened. It's just a, a useful example that the readers would relate to. And that's what Jude is doing here. Back to the main point. The false teachers in Jude have been dreaming. And these aren't your typical dreams uh, about getting chased by a lion or being late for school. Um, These people believe their dreams are new revelation from God that mean polluting their bodies is okay. And verse 8 says that one of the consequences of those dreams is that they are rejecting authority and slandering angels, heaping abuse on them. Now, to understand the significance of that, because it does sound weird, it's important to know that Jewish literature at the time considered angels to be the ones who delivered God's law to Moses, hence the connection to Moses in verse 9. Angels were the messengers of God's law. So, Here's the picture. These false teachers have had these dreams of new revelation. And on the strength of those dreams, they are rejecting the authority of the angels who delivered God's law. They're throwing away what God has revealed in the scriptures because they've dreamed that polluting their bodies is okay. They reject what God has decreed in the past because they have been told something new. Jude then uses the story of Michael and the devil to show that belittling the messengers of God is wrong. Throwing out what God has revealed in the favor of some updated version, it is wrong, and it leads to destruction. Christians who bless same-sex partnerships are obviously guilty of this. We've already seen that they're changing the gospel, preaching grace with no repentance, 
And they're doing this by throwing out what God has revealed in favor of some new personal revelation. I'm going to be un-PC for a moment, if I haven't been already. And uh, if you want to get me in trouble, this is the bit to quote. The Bible calls homosexual practice sin. It's not wrong to have those attractions, but God says homosexual practice is sinful. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1 are all perfectly clear on that. And whenever Jesus spoke of marriage, he always spoke about it between one man and one woman without exception, upholding God's intention. It's a sin that Jesus came to rescue from just like any other. Arguments about those passages do get thrown around. I recently heard a Radio 4 presenter say that there's some scholarly debate over what the Bible says about homosexuality. Some people say that the Bible doesn't speak about committed same-sex relationships, but rather same-sex rape or same-sex prostitution. And initially, I was planning to spend a bit of time um, talking about those views. But honestly, there is nothing to argue against. It would be like debating with people who say the earth is flat. There is, there is nothing convincing about those arguments. The people that put them forward might try to sound convincing by throwing Greek words at you, but, but honestly, they might as well be flat earthers because in terms of understanding what the Bible says, it is perfectly clear that God considers homosexual practice a sin. What the Bible says is clear, so the only way to get round it is to reject what God has revealed and update it with some new personal dreams. This isn't an area we can agree to disagree on. It's a fundamental erosion of the authority of the Bible. Now, um, before we talk about how to contend, here is a final reason why we must contend against Christians who bless same-sex partnerships. We'll put it up on the screen. Salvation is at stake. In heaven, there are going to be loads of people that we disagree with. Loads of them. Praise God. People who've got different views on baptism, people with different styles of worship, people who understand the work of the Holy Spirit differently to us. I think we're going to be pleasantly surprised in all sorts of ways. But I believe the Church of England leaders who've advanced this agenda will not be there. They've turned their back on the gospel that saves, and so there is no more salvation for them. Earlier in verses 5 to 7, we saw three uh, examples of what these teachers were like. Unbelieving Old Testament Israel, um, uh, the uh, angels who rebelled, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to them? Destruction, eternal chains, uh, everlasting chains and eternal fire. And in verse 11, we see three further illustrations from the Old Testament. Uh, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. All three had corrupting influences on others. As the first murderer, Cain taught the rest of the human race how to kill. Um, 
Balaam enticed Israel to worship Baal, and Korah led others in a rebellion against Moses. None of these people had any regard for the people that they were leading, the people that they corrupted. And Jude says those who pervert the gospel are exactly the same. Uh, They are shepherds who only feed themselves. They are clouds that don't give rain for our crops. They are trees that don't give any fruits. They are uh, stars that we can't trust for direction. Jude reveals the consequences of their corrupting behavior. From another work of Jewish literature, First Enoch, verse 14 says this, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words of ungodly ungodly sinners have spoken against him. When it comes to the leaders that have advanced this agenda today, why would the situation be any different? They're guilty of the same heresy, twisting the grace of God, taking away repentance. They're guilty of using the same method, um, throwing away what God has revealed in favor of their dreams. Has God changed? No. So their end will be the same as well. We must contend for the faith because salvation is what's at stake. And I think even more importantly, we must contend for the faith because the people who listen, because of the people who listen to these leaders, don't you want to weep over the congregations who sit under the ministry of these people week by week? They're sitting in pews hearing a twisted version of God's grace. They're listening to these prayers, incorrectly learning that God doesn't care about repentance. They're never going to be told that it's a necessary response to God's grace. They're never going to hear the gospel. So how will they be saved unless someone fights for what is true? We must contend for the faith against Christians who bless same-sex partnerships because they deny the lordship of Jesus. They reject what God has revealed and salvation is at stake. This talk is more about the gospel than it is about the Church of England, but I think I should make a couple of comments about our attitudes towards that denomination. On the one hand, There are still excellent gospel churches in the Church of England. We should pray for them as they work out themselves how to contend for the faith from within. Many have already issued statements and are taking practical steps to do so. But at the same time, we should recognize that a really historical change has taken place. For a long time, the Church of England has been a mixed denomination with gospel people and liberal people. But the teaching, the official teaching of the church has been great. However, from this point forward, the official teaching of the Church of England denies the gospel. The official teaching of the Church of England perverts the grace of God into a license for immorality. That is a historically significant change that should cause us to 
rethink how we view that church. I'm not going to be prescriptive on this, but let's say that you were going to move to a new part of the UK and you were thinking about what church to attend. Can you be sure that in a C of E church you'd hear the gospel? Can you be sure that in 10 years' time you would hear the gospel there? Can you be sure that you would be able to notice when that changed? You'd have to think that through very carefully. Um, Thank you for kind of paying attention so far. I recognize that this is longer than usual. But it's been important to explain why we must contend for the faith. I want to finish with some short applications on how to contend for the faith. Um, We'll click on a slide here. Firstly, remember. Jude says in verse 17, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. It's important to remember that what's happening today was prophesied. Like what's happening in the Church of England and elsewhere has not caught God off guard. He is not surprised. His plans have not been derailed even one millimeter. He saw it coming. Keep remembering that to bring you comfort when you're tempted to despair over what's going on. God isn't panicking and neither should we. Second application, keep yourself in God's love. That's from verses 20 and 21. Um, These teachers have turned their back on God's love. We should not do the same. When there's a crisis in the church like this, it's so easy to just be pointing the finger at those out there and thinking it's their problem, not ours. But our priority needs to be making sure that we ourselves are not corrupted by this teaching. Don't assume you're safe. Remember judges, unless God intervenes, we spiral down out of control in sin. Jude says in those verses, there are two ways to keep yourself in God's love. First, keep building on the solid foundation of the faith. Be the wise man who built his house on the rock of Jesus' teaching. Don't be the foolish man building his house on the sand of whatever the culture thinks is right at the time. Ask yourselves, are you making decisions based on what you've read in the Bible this morning, what you heard uh, in the sermon on Sunday? Or are you becoming the person you're becoming more because of the TV program you watched last night or the people that you spend your time with? Keep building on the solid foundation of the faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. This isn't a special type of prayer. Rather, it means genuine prayer as opposed to just going through the motions. Pray that you would stick to the gospel. Pray that we as a church would stick to the true gospel. Third application from verses 22 to 23. Be merciful. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. This is not a sermon filled with ammunition to take people out. Some of your friends and family are Christians who bless same-sex partnerships. 
This isn't about writing them off. Rather, don't agree to disagree on this issue and then never bring it up with them again. It's too important an issue for that because they are playing with fire. They need to be reminded of the true gospel. Be winsome, be warm, but keep saying what is true. God is gracious and we respond to that with repentance. Tell them you're worried about them. That's how to contend. And one last application. Know your God. It's unsettling when Christians and churches go off the rails. So let's take this encouraging statement of worship at the end of Jude to heart. In doubts, in trouble, this is who our God is. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Church of England who are holding firm. Lord, we pray even over the coming weeks and months as they have conversations about how to respond to this, that you would guide them, be with them, strengthen them, give them wisdom. Lord, we pray that there would still be a true gospel witness in that church. We dare to pray as well that the the leaders who have advanced this agenda would repent. And Father, for us, we pray that you would keep us repenting. Lord, we thank you so much that you are a God of grace, amazing grace. Please help us to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to accept his rule over our lives, to accept his say over what is right and what is wrong. Lord, please help us to contend for this faith. Please help us to keep saying what is true. Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness and courage as well as love and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.